Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, November 9th. We continue our election coverage now with three guests. Kai Wright, host of WNYC's Notes from America with Kai Wright, heard Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. Alexis Grinnell, columnist for The Nation and co-founder of Pythia Public, a political consultancy which works mostly with Democrats. And Charlie Sykes, founder and editor-at-large and host of a podcast at The Bulwark, a publication largely of anti-Trump conservatives. He's also an MSNBC contributor and author of the book, How the Right Lost Its Mind. Thanks to all of you for coming on. And Alexis and Charlie, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Alexis, um, we just heard in the newscast from governor and now governor-elect Kathy Hochul, a meaningful hole in the glass ceiling. Sure. Well, Kathy Hochul is, of course, New York's first female governor. She's also the 46th governor, female governor ever elected in U.S. history, which is significant because we see in the data repeatedly that voters are more comfortable electing women to collaborative bodies like state legislatures where attributes that are historically and typically coded as female, like communication, working together, um, are sort of seen as prime qualities. And the the uh, the the adjectives we identify as leadership or with leadership are historically coded as male. So having a woman in an executive authority position is a huge deal. It's very meaningful, especially um, winning in her own right, although um, her victory, frankly, is uh, a lot closer than it should have been. Do you think it was a lot closer than it should have been to any meaningful degree because of sexism, intentional or unintentional in the electorate? So gender is absolutely always a factor. Um, It's absurd to pretend it isn't, but it's not the prime factor. And in this case, I think there are other more salient facts that uh, determined the margin here. And the reality is the... uh, campaign and the state democratic apparatus was really asleep at the wheel until they woke up at the 11th hour and with the help, frankly, of the Working Families Party, which um, accounts for about 4% and change of the vote for Hochul, which nearly mirrors her 5% uh, margin. They really deserve a huge amount of credit here for getting up off the mat and delivering for Democrats when the party didn't really do much. So, uh, you know, I think there are other really technical factors that play into her margin, but it would be foolish to ignore gender as a factor. It always is. And I could talk about this all day, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we got at least that far for now. Kai, how much do you see the Hochul victory as part of the national story today of Americans' reluctance to go full MAGA, as many people have put it? And how much do you see it as its own New York thing revolving around crime and abortion rights and other local issues? I mean, to me, it reads as a New York thing, quite frankly. Um, And, um, you know, I mean, overall, the state, if you to go down the county list, there was a lot of trending Republican, even even where Hochul was winning. She's won by less uh, than Biden won in 2020. Um, I think a lot of that you talked about this a lot last hour just has to do with how. Uh, freaked out a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, um, particularly outside of New York City, are uh, about crime right now. Um, but I think the national picture, you know, I mean, it's it is very difficult to draw. Um, 
I, I would I would be very reluctant to draw any large conclusions <laughs> about the national picture from this outside of the fact that uh, the Republican Party fielded a lot of really bad candidates and that uh, both in terms of their political skill and in terms of just how far right they were um, that turned off Republican voters. <laughs> um, and 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 I think to it, I I would caution the Democratic Party from from declaring too much about, you know, I saw a quote somewhere from a Biden strategist today that was like, he's definitely running in 2024. <laughs> um, you know, this is a, a referendum on Biden. And I just don't know if that's true. If you when you start looking at the races, when you start going really race by race, it a lot of it really looks like really bad Republican candidates that that frankly turned off Republican voters. Charlie, sounds like you wanted to react to exactly that point. No, I, I think that that's a good point. Um, it may not have been a referendum on Joe Biden, but it was certainly a referendum on uh, Donald Trump and what the Republicans are doing. And in terms of just the national picture, I guess I would slightly disagree because you're looking at uh, Republicans uh, losing the governorship in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Maryland and, and New York with with some very MAGA candidates, uh, you know, very, very low quality I'm candidates. So. So you are you are seeing um, you, you you are seeing um, a a pushback against that, and I and I think that you know several things happened there. Um, you know, number one, the the voters um, uh, were I think alarmed at uh, some of the trends that they're seeing. Uh, I think the the threats to democracy loom larger in the minds of many voters than than perhaps the collective pundit hive mind was uh, was was expecting. And and quite frankly, uh, in each of those states, uh, not not only was Trumpism on the ballot, uh, but the abortion issue. I think that uh, there was an un underestimation of the enduring impact of the Dobbs decision in all of those races. Charlie, do we seem headed for Trump election denial kinds of fights now? in the Senate races that are still too close to call. I'm thinking particularly of Nevada and Arizona, Mark Kelly against Blake Masters in Arizona, Catherine Cortez Masto against Adam Laxalt in Nevada, both states where the Democrats are the incumbents trying to hold on. Yeah, and I think it's it's inevitable, particularly in, in Arizona where you have Kerry Lake, um, who is widely expected to win in, in one of the worst election deniers in the country. If she falls short, uh, I think it's inevitable that they're going to have uh, election denial 2.0. I mean, they've really been practicing this and marinating in conspiracy theories um, and rejection of legitimate votes now for two years. I think it would be naive no, to no, think I'm that they wouldn't deploy it in the midterm elections, having deployed it after the 2020 elections. Kai, you have a comment on that? I mean, I think short of it. it so. Charlie's absolutely right. I mean, Arizona, I think no matter what, if, if I mean, even if Carrie Lake wins, I feel like we're probably going to hear uh, a conversation about whether sure. it was a fair election, given that that is so much of her, her brand. Uh, Nevada remains, uh, who knows, but it is trending uh, in the Republican direction. There is no question there's going to be a roll, runoff in Georgia. I guess I couldn't say, can't say anything's no question, but it seems like there's going to be a runoff in Georgia. And it feels to me like we're headed to yet another place where Georgia is going to um, be the place uh, deciding the outcome uh, of the Senate. Um, and uh, and I think all three of those states, we are I, I would batten down the hatches for the kind of conversation we're going to be having over the next couple of months. Uh, I think it's going to be really intense. We had some connectivity problems with Alexis there for a minute, but I think we have her back now. 
Alexis, are you worried as a New York-based person at all about election denial on the part of Lee Zeldin? He hasn't conceded yet. Yeah, that's a real concern, Brian. I mean, the uh, it's a five-point spread that Governor Hochul has. He could decide to have a tantrum about it, but the reality is the numbers are going to work in her favor in the end. She took the city with 70% plus. And then the absentees, which, you know, we can be counted, even if they, you know, come in as late as November 14th, are likely going to trend Democratic because that's the pattern we've been seeing. I mean, Republicans have actively been working against voters' rights to, to cast their ballot absentee. And typically, they've trended Democrats. So it doesn't seem to be much point in throwing that fit, but we'll see. Let's take a phone call. Michael in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Michael. Hi, Brian. Um, I wanted to get to, to sort of share a little anecdote about a segment I heard on Morning Edition uh, this morning and maybe get some feedback from your guests on it. Mm-hmm. So it was an uh, interview with a Gen Z activist, like political activist, who was voting in his first election um, and how exciting that was. And most of the discussion was about how Gen Z voters are sort of sympathetic with and support their Gen Z peers across the country. So even though, you know, abortion rights are safe in New York, we want to make sure that they're safe, you know, available to people in other places. Then right before it ended, the uh, reporter asked about support for Biden. And that's an issue that's been bothering me, I think, as a 61-year-old Democrat uh, who goes, his memories go back as far as the Nixon years. I think Biden may be one of the best presidents of my lifetime. And yet Gen Z voters seem to not really think that for various reasons. And this young man who's a Democratic activist voting in his first election said, look, they've passed. He's passed, you know, and he went through the whole list. You know, like I'm not, right now I'm blanking, but, you know, climate change and and, and negotiating, you know, uh, Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, oh, that's exactly right. Thank goodness I'm finally hearing a Gen Z person say that. So I'm interested in what your guests might have to say about whether Gen Z might be having a, taking a second look at Biden. Michael, thank you very much. Alexis, I, I'm tempted to go right back to you on that since you work in the political consultancy sector. What do you see? Sure. So, I mean, Gen Z is actually one of those fired up um, constituencies. They're people who've been shot at in public schools and form the basis of so much of the activism around the gun control movement. They're not um, sleepy. And actually, they turned out pretty strongly in this election, relatively speaking. It's good to see their political commitment continuing. Um, Of course, you know, the base of the sort of any elections tends to be people 55 and over because they have a history and habit of voting as compared to somebody who's voting in just their first election. That's not surprising, but they're pretty promising, especially since they're also, you know, the real engine behind the climate movement as well. So I actually feel pretty optimistic about Gen Z. They're just young and they don't have as much experience voting, but that doesn't foreclose on what they're going to turn into, which could be a very significant force. Charlie, the, I'm sorry, did you want to finish the thought, Alexis? No, that wasn't me. That was it. Charlie, um, the exit poll that I saw last night from the TV networks had voters under 30 at just 10% of the electorate yesterday, which would be less than in 2020. Uh, As far as who they voted for, I'm looking at the um, AP VoteCast, which has the the 18 to 29-year-olds voting 53% for Democrats. The next, the network exit poll has them much more for Democrats, 63%. So what do you make of young voters in this election? 
You know, I, I've gotten conflicting numbers about all of that. But, you know, one of the things I've been trying to figure out is uh, why there appears to have been a polling miss in some of these elections. And, and I wonder whether there was an overcorrection on the part of the pollsters uh, and the pundit class in, in 2016. The pollsters underestimated the number of new Republican voters that would come to the polls to vote for Donald Trump. They did, they weren't on the radar screen. I wondered, one of my initial theories was, did they uh, underestimate the number of young voters um, who were brought to the polls um, to vote in this particular election for democracy, for climate change, uh, on or on the abortion issue? So that that's, that, that's a question um, that I have, because clearly... Um, you know, there there had been this sense that uh, Republican voters were much more motivated, and yet Democratic voters turned out in big numbers, and um, a substantial portion of those have to be have been younger voters who might not have, uh, who who might not have, I, I mean. Let me back up a bit. Who uh, pollsters? I, I don't think have cracked the code of how to poll uh, younger voters necessarily. So and that's a, a, an open question going forward as we try to figure out what we got right and what we got wrong. Do you think the polls were wrong leading into this election in exactly the opposite of how they were wrong in 2016 when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to win? This time we kept hearing Republican wave and that didn't happen, even if they. Squeak, squeak by with the majority in Congress? I think that's a possibility. I mean, not, not all the polls were wrong. I mean, the polls here in my home state of Wisconsin were pretty much exactly, were exactly right. Mm. Um, on, the, on the other hand, there was this really dramatic shift in the conventional wisdom. I used the term hive mind before. I mean, this is something just sort of to remember how um, the conventional wisdom had just turned hard, that it was going to be this massive red wave. And at a certain point, it becomes uh, self-reinforcing. And it's just kind of a reminder that we, we need to be skeptical about anyone that has uh, presumes to have real insight into what is about to happen in, in an era that's as volatile as ours. I just think, can I hop in here, Brian? Because I think yeah. it's, I think one, it, we do have to be careful about nationalizing these conversations yeah. to me. And, you know, and I think when you start to, that's one of the exciting things about this election. And as you start to drill down, at least on some of these key places, Georgia, Pennsylvania, you see that it took about the, the sort of Turning it into a red ripple, uh, as if we're using that phrase, took a couple mm -hmm. of took a both and strategy. It took in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania this massive expansion of the of the electorate to bring yeah. in more Democrats, and we saw that right. But it also took. I mean, if I think what if Georgia is a really interesting example. If you look at Stacey Abrams versus Raphael Warnock and how they fared, Abrams running for governor and Warnock in the Senate, you know, and you look at at it from county by county, it is very clear. Um, that Warnock managed to convince some Republicans to vote for him, you yeah. know? Um, and you look at, for instance, like Cobb County uh, right outside of Atlanta, um, a, you know, a white, highly educated, um, you know, trendy, you know, sort of swing county. Um, and Abrams won that by four points, but, but Warnock won it by 17. He got some Republican votes. And, um, and, some, and a lot of that is about Herschel Walker was a radical right candidate. Um, and, uh, and, but it also, it's, so it's a both and. There is an expansion of the, the electorate that is necessary that includes Gen Z. I, I would love to see how many um, young black voters came out in Georgia. I bet it's huge. Um, and, and it's an expansion of electorate, but it is also 
a, a, a question of in these suburbs whether or not the Republican Party can keep its voters. Well, to that point, Kai, or part of the point you were making, how do you think this election actually went in terms of voting rights? I mean, there's been so much said about states that change their laws, right, to suppress especially black Democrats from easily voting, and then about intimidating voters and poll workers to make it even harder. But here we are talking about how Democrats held their own relative to history and relative to expectations, and lots of turnout everywhere that mattered. So how did voting rights fare as far as you could tell? Well, one of the things we know about voting rights and voter suppression is that where it really matters is when there's a low turnout, right? Um, you know, you can't overwhelm. And this is what, this is something that Stacey Abrams says, and I think this is something she's right about. This is something that a lot of those folks uh, in that corner, in that corner of the politics say, is like, we can overwhelm uh, voter suppression, you know, if you have a huge turnout. Um, and so I think the Democratic Party aided by the Dobbs decision, there is no question, in my mind at least, mm -hmm. um, was able to have this massive turnout that makes those sort of, um, all of those things that, that that are done to suppress the vote um, have less impact. That doesn't mean that they didn't exist, but they have less impact when you have a massive turnout. Alexis, you want to keep going on that? Sure. I mean, what's really exciting, actually, is in Michigan, where uh, Proposition 2 enshrined uh, nine days of early voting and a requirement to fund absentee ballot drop boxes to the Constitution. That won with 59 percent of the vote, in addition to the abortion rights ballot initiative, which won with 56 percent of the vote, in addition to flipping the Michigan legislature and all three statewide office holders getting reelection. I mm. think there's a through line. Voters won supported abortion in places as varied as Kentucky to Vermont to Michigan, and we're waiting for the Montana results to come in, but they look good. And voter suppression, as Kai says, isn't popular. I mean, taking the step to enshrine rights into the Constitution is significant. And it's also worth noting that that same effort failed in New York just two years ago yeah. because of Republican efforts driven and funded by billionaire Ron Lauder. Um, which other, you know, again, this is back to the problem with the New York State Democratic Party, which is an absolute shambles. If they can get it together to kind of stick by their own candidates and their own win, if in a place like Michigan, frankly, is the New York of this way. And we continue to have some connectivity problems with Alexis, but I'm going to try to follow up because one of the interesting things you just said is the New York Democratic Party is in shambles. And you say that even though Hochul won and it looks like uh, the Democrats will continue to have a super majority, a veto proof majority or close to it in the state legislature. So why shambles? So the state party is actually run by uh, a chairman, Jay Jacobs, uh, who um, is supposed to be, frankly, uh, out there swinging, beating Republicans, but more often spends his time punching left. It's great that the governor won, but she didn't win by very much. And the fact that the Democratic Party didn't really spend resources communicating to voters the way the Working Families Party did is really telling. I'm a triple prime Democratic voter in Brooklyn, and I did not receive an email, a piece of mail, a phone call or a text from the Democrats. I was touched multiple times by the Working Families Party. And like I said before, their margin uh, in Hochul's victory actually mirrors 
nearly what she won by. That's significant. It's great that the Democrats in the Senate also succeeded, but there's been a real rout in Congress. And I'm going to have a piece out a little bit about that. Whereas the red wave failed to materialize outside in the rest of the country, there very much was a wipeout here in New York State. There are a lot of reasons for that, redistricting chief among them, but it's not unrelated to the fact that we don't have a real state party apparatus. And that's in part because Andrew Cuomo was the state party and never bothered to Mm. invest in it or build anything up. Carmen in Broome County, New York. You're on WNYC. Hi, Carmen. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I've actually been listening to the show for a long time, and in the in that time, I've changed in my views. I've become more conservative. Um, I used to live down in the city, mm-hmm. and I just want to say that uh, it reminded me of the 2018 midterms, just in the reverse, because there was an expected huge blue wave at that time, and it became like a blue ripple. I think for the more conservative-minded DeSantis winning uh, Broward County. I believe it was Broward County, um, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach. I think that's exhilarating. I think he's the future of that Republican side. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering how you think he might parse, him, you know, how he might differentiate himself from Trump. I mean, hopefully he's able to keep his ego in check. And I'm also really interested in what you think about the Latino vote, because I do think that is um, the future. And Charlie, I'll go to you first on this in a minute. But Carmen, let me ask you first. What do you think differentiates DeSantis from Trump, if anything, on policy? Or is it just about their ego and their style? I think he's more polished. I think he, well, he's a politician. I mean, you know, Trump is many things. I don't think he was a politician. Uh, And I think that was actually something people liked about him. But Frankly, I think you have to have that political savvy to appeal to both sides. And he he just brings out the crazy in everybody. <laughs> and, um, and DeSantis, you know, I, he is, you know, he's he's got some, you know, um, positions that drive people crazy, but he's able to present them in a way that is just more savvy in my point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, I also thought that the Dobbs decision, like, I think, I'm sorry if I get the wrong name, I think it was Alexis who was saying uh, that the New York Democratic Party is in shambles. I I would agree with that just because uh, had it not been for the Dobbs decision, what happened in the Supreme Court, I think, I don't know how they would have campaigned on things that people would have got out the door to go vote for. I think that, especially with the college vote, the college females, um, I think that was decisive for a lot of Democrat runs that were razor thin. Thank you so much, and thanks for a first-time call. Please call us again. Charlie, you want to weigh in on that, especially um, DeSantis doing well among Latinos and generally in some more Democratic counties, uh, traditionally Democratic counties in Florida? Well, I'm, I want to make it clear that you know, I, I find Ron DeSantis to be deplorable in many ways. So this is just a descriptive analysis of it. I mean, look, um, uh, today's kind of a, a a new day for Ron DeSantis because you know, despite the disappointing uh, national performance by Republicans, you know, he 
you know, he 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 whooped up in in Florida. I mean, he just he just crushed it, winning by nearly 20 points. So he is the rising shining star um, of the Republican Party, which uh, is a real threat to to, to Donald Trump. Um, I mean, when you see him on the cover of the New York Post as the future of the Republican Party, the big question now is, does he have the guts? Uh, to take on Donald Trump, uh, there are a lot of people who believe that uh, that he would ha- that he has a glass jaw, uh, that he when when push comes to shove, uh, he knows what would happen to take on the MAGA base, and most Republicans are terrified of going after that base. And yesterday on election day, Donald Trump's kind of pulling that mafia you know maneuver, saying you know. Um, I could tell you things about uh, Ron DeSantis that he wouldn't like, and basically, you know, saying I got the shiv here in my pocket, and I'm going I'm to gut you uh, if you run against me. But having said that, right now, today, and this may fade, um, there is tremendous sentiment on the part of the donor class and elected Republicans that this would be a good time to turn the page. And what Ron DeSantis has done is he's basically turned himself into a Trumpist mini me. Where he is, you know, plays the same culture war cards, uh, you know, cards attacks, hurts the same people um, that the Trump uh, does. So is Trump, but without the baggage, a little bit more polished. And so if Ron DeSantis stepped up, and I don't know that he will, and said it's time to uh, give Donald Trump a gold watch and turn the page, um, that we need someone who can win rather than lose. If you go with me, you get somebody who would serve two terms rather than one term, someone who could actually win in 2024 as opposed to somebody who has lost. I think that that would have real traction. And I think that Donald Trump um, instinctively understands that down in Mar-a-Lago, which is why he's been throwing shots at him, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious, because yeah. he understands that that DeSantis is substantively so close to him that if he basically says, look, you're old, let's move on, let's turn the page, that this might be the moment Republicans might do that. But again, remember what we all thought on January 6th, 2021, <laughs> that Republicans would turn the page and they chose not to. So today may be, you know, January 7th, uh, you know, 2.0. Kai, any thoughts on the demographic breakdowns? By race, I'm looking at the network exit poll and the AP vodecast poll results. This is national, so we're nationalizing again. But black voters, uh, about 82 to 86 percent for Democrats, Hispanic and Latino voters, high 50s only for Democrats. Um, so around 40 percent, a little over 40 percent for Republicans, Asian-Americans, similar 58, 60% for Democrats, 40% for Republicans. I think that's lower than in recent elections. Any thoughts? I don't know that there's much to say about it um, that's outside of normal. You know, I mean, I think the the, the thing I'll, I, I will talk about is the Latino vote piece of it. I don't think we can make any uh, assumptions about Latinos anywhere else in the world outside of Florida based on who voted for Ron DeSantis in Florida. The Latino right. community there is a very different Latino community than in Arizona, which is a very different Latino community yep. than in Nevada, than in California, mm-hmm. than in New York. Uh, it's it's a phrase that I think as we mature in our conversation about uh, that community's vote, we will use less and less, I hope. Um, and, you know, and, and I think one of the things that's notable, we did a, a segment on Arizona and Latino 
Association of Voters in Arizona uh, last week and talked to a reporter there uh, who's been following that. I mean, and, and one of the things to remember is, I mean, Latino voters, if there is anything to say about them in general, is that they are more independent than uh, than than other groups. Um, you know, they tend to be, you know, in the 40 percentiles of independence. And I think that relates to it also being a younger vote. Um, so I, I don't know that there's much to, to say other than, uh, you know, thinking about the demographic breakdown, other than that, you know, people came out to vote of all ages and all races this, mm-hmm. this year. And I would say, I, I, but I do want to follow up on what Charlie was just talking about with DeSantis. And I wonder, I, it's really a question for Charlie for me, is like, you know, is, is DeSantis is, is turning the page from Donald Trump, but certainly not Trumpism. Right. You know, and um, and I I do wonder about in this moment, given how stark to me, when you look at the outcomes here, how stark it is that uh, Trumpism was such baggage for the Republican Party in this election, how that is not. I mean, I guess how I'm asking a dumb rhetorical question, actually, <laughs> how that is not yet another opportunity for Republican leadership to say, ah, we've got to find a different way here. Because there's no reason why, I mean, by all accounts, this should have truly been a drubbing um, for the Republican Party. And uh, and if it weren't for horrible candidates. You mean in, for the Democratic Party. For the Democratic right? Party. But if yeah. it weren't for these candidates in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, I mean, just place after place, uh, it, it, it's, it's just hard to wrap your head around because they're losing Republican mm. voters very Charlie? clearly. This is a very, very sophisticated question, Kai, <laughs> because because you're 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 right. Um, the 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 threat of DeSantis is the fact that that he is Trumpism. That you you know with him you maybe get a more competent Trumpist, and therefore he's he's in many ways as dangerous or more dangerous. Although I think that Trump poses a unique existential threat. But I, I don't think that Republicans are going to see it the, the way that you, you phrased it, which is that it's time to move on from Trumpism. I think what they'll look at is the candidates who Donald Trump foisted on them as just being a bunch of, of crackpots and, uh, and and flakes and, and, and grifters and charlatans. And uh, they'll rationalize that and they'll say, but if you have somebody who is well-spoken, who is Ivy League, who is more competent, um, we can go with that. We can go with all of the xenophobia. We're not offended by the fact that uh, he he you know transported um, you know migrants to uh, you know to uh, uh, to Martha's Vineyard that didn't bother us at all the cruelty didn't bother us or the attacks on you know free speech didn't bother us what bothers us is the fact that you have uh, the you know con men like uh, Dr Oz or complete QAnon lunatics like Doug Mastriano so I think that again this is kind of the dilemma that the Republican Party. Um, will stick with Trumpism, even though you could certainly make a case that it is Trumpism itself that has been leading them into the wilderness. But I'm not sure that they're there yet at all. Hmm. We'll continue That's in true, a minute. Charlie. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Alexis. Continue on that. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say what's interesting is that of course, I, I, compl- I completely agree with that. I also think, though, the way in which abortion showed up in, in states like Kentucky and Michigan Amazing. and Vermont— yeah is amazing and an interesting indication because, you know, uh, the Republican Party has been anti-abortion for decades. This precedes Trump. But the, the brutality of, 
of the Dobbs decision and the fallout from that is really telling. And we saw this surge in voter registration, particularly from female voters. And to quote my friend, Alison Turcotes, who's a reproductive rights activist in Vermont, everybody loves someone who's had an abortion. That might have been in part the lesson here. And that's not something I think Republicans have shown much of a willingness to walk away from, although they were sort of squishy at points in the election, like Tudor Dixon, who went down in Michigan, basically said, well, there's a ballot initiative you can vote for if you want to support abortion and support me in all other cases. But voters supported the ballot initiative and they rejected her, which is sort of, uh, I think, a strategic lesson that we should actually get abortion on the ballot in more states. It could be a bigger problem for Republicans, actually. Huge. Yeah, that would be a nightmare for them. And that has to be the last word. Alexis Grinnell, columnist for The Nation and co-founder of Pythia Public. Kai Wright, host of WNYC's Notes from America, national show, call in, 6 o'clock Sunday night. Kai, five seconds. Who you got this week? Uh, we got callers. We get, it's all about the listeners. What are you thinking after as a response to this, this election? And Charlie Sykes, founder and editor at large and podcast host at The Bulwark and author of How the Right Lost its mind. Thank you all so much for an hour on an extremely busy day. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.